All right, guys, welcome back to another podcast. Today we have another special guest uh, on air. Uh, she's not live in the studio, but she's here by phone, so stay tuned. Welcome to the podcast. Another another uh, step in the swing yes. over to service and uh, ultimately process. process. Yeah, process is the correction or the fix for service. Yes, but yes, sir. today today on the line uh, we have Dr. Caroline Rauschendorfer. Hello. <laughs> Hello. We're we're sad that we couldn't get you live in the studio, but uh, that that day will come. Uh, I'm sure once we get over to our new studio, we'll have ample time space and ability to coordinate you actually being here but thank you for thank you for coming on air thank you for having me yes absolutely i think one of our uh you know big things of course is we swing the pendulum from core values and the education system over to the process side um yeah i think just caroline has, has so many good interesting questions just yeah. in general and i think some of those questions in a different setting would be seen as challenging <laughs> You know, like, uh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Challenging the way in which we do things, but I love the natural curiosity. Well, right. It, it's the, it, as you had said, uh, Caroline is similar to you where yeah. why, right? Right. That's the question. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. And that's, and like I said, I think that's met very well. Cause I, I think that not just collaboration in um, like the way in which things are done, but it's more so on open to then collaboration when it comes to interacting with caregivers. You know, where it's like if they have questions, it's like, oh, I'm used to asking questions, too. You know, so, I, I, you know, I think that makes it a lot, um, a lot easier, uh, at least from a consultation side, from the uh, bedside manner, as it were. Mm -hmm. I, uh, but uh, but yeah, Caroline, so uh, a little small introduction. So um, you and I are both Spartans, but not necessarily for, more of an undergrad Spartan connection there. Yep. So what did you, uh, I guess just to kind of get through early kind of uh, education life career up till now, can you kind of give us a, a little bit of flavor on who Dr. Caroline is? Sure. Uh, my trajectory, as it were, has not been a uh, typical one, although I can't say that there is such a thing as a typical trajectory in vet medicine. I don't think anymore. <laughs> yeah, there may yeah. Have, in the 80s there probably was. <laughs> right. Um, but so basically, um, I did my undergrad at Michigan state, um, hence the Spartan connection and am from Michigan originally. And then I did my vet school education at Iowa state in Ames, Iowa. Um, and then I, from there graduated and went into a hundred percent dairy practice, um, in Bakersfield, California. Um, and then decided that I didn't really want to be that far from home anymore. So I moved sure. back to the Midwest um, at a 100% food animal practice. Um, and that's kind of when I got involved with PAW is through the process of working there. Um, I met Carlo. He actually did a procedure on my personal dog. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. And then uh, brought me into the fold that is PAW. Um, so convinced me to come work as a relief veterinarian, um, with PAW. And I now am actually at a different clinic, which is a mixed animal practice. Um, so both small 
and large animals. Um, and I'm still working as a relief veterinarian for POC. So. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. And that was uh, one of our current full-time veterinarians um, that you guys went to school together. So uh, Dr. Janessa, yeah, that was kind of that connection. It wasn't just like randomly we had a vet show. Can you do this thing on my dog? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, there was a little bit of guided nature to it. But um, um, but yeah, so, you know, and I think, um, you know, we talk about purpose, right? So, you know, for us, it's, it's serve the patient. And I think the patient, of course, can be defined um, several different ways. Um, but uh, you and I actually had a very, a very unique conversation one time. Um, it, we've had uh, several over, you know, over the year and a half or two years or whatever. But one of them was actually more so of um, you have this sort of, uh, I don't know if you want to say, want to call it purpose or fulfillment, but a part of that large animal side at one point in time, you had talked about um, being able to feed the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, I thought was uh, really interesting. If you could um, elaborate just a, a, a bit on that, can you? Um, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of big. It's <laughs> yeah, um, it's something that I've always been very passionate about. I guess that's part of what drew me to uh, food animal practice in general is just the mentality that um, you know it, it's not just it is serving the patient. But your patient is also serving a larger purpose in society. You are helping to feed the world, basically. And um, I have a huge, huge, huge respect for farmers, um, for all that they do for us. And um, like I said, just basically food and, um, and our agricultural supply and, and how we feed an ever-growing population and all of that stuff is just very um, important to me, and it's something that I, I always strive to learn more about and educate people about as much as I can. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a small snippet. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, w- like, for me, how I kind of I, I found that so interesting is that um, that's a 30,000-foot view. So that, mm-hmm. that, that, is a, that is a systems approach to your practical job and I think that was one of the sort of fundamentals that of course you know just in meeting you and of course now knowing your you know why and wanting to learn and curiosity and so on and so forth um, is that systems thinking is that kind of big picture type thinking you know the 30,000 foot view and I think that's something where if you lack that perspective, you can get very much stuck in the day to day. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, uh, at least in, in some capacity, sometimes, uh, you know, when we kind of get stuck into the day to day sort of practical nature of our job, we can lose the, the ultimate long term fulfillment, um, you know, the purpose and well-being, at least, you know, sort of what we've identified. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I thought that was very fascinating. I had never, you know, thought of that, you know, as saying that the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the greater good, essentially this, you know, like I said, the ever, ever, uh, increasing population for which we have to feed. Well, talk about having a purpose to get out of the, out of bed every day. Yeah. That's a mm-hmm. lot bigger than most other people's. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, yeah. you know, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's still difficult when your phone rings at 2 a.m. and you have to <laughs> and go serve, like, one particular patient just to remember that that's ultimately your goal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Say, yes. But, yeah. <laughs> yes. But I, w- I would counter-argue by saying if you were a practical thinker, that wouldn't be difficult. Right. So being a systems thinker and knowing that you are, you know, doing the greater good is sometimes you have that constant 
bigger picture type thing. And you're just, when you get stuck into the day to day, that's where it can feel very much like a 2 a.m. phone call, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. I, that's what I, I know that I personally struggle with a lot. Um, you know, at least in working through PAW and some of the processes we, we had a leadership meeting earlier today where that was kind of the discussion on, um, trying to increase clarity and competency, um, you know, within, a sort of practical thinking scenario. So the day-to-day type scenario is that if we are, you know, again, we've talked about this on multiple podcasts, but just always staying in the clouds, thinking about, you know, sort of the big picture, we can lose a lot of people along the way. Well, and that can get mm-hmm. the, the monotony of process for those that are 30,000 foot thinkers yes. can be very demotivating and vice yep. versa. So for practical thinkers, like not understanding like how all the pieces go together, but constantly being reminded that it's about the big picture yeah. can also be very demotivating. Cause it's like, <laughs> I don't even know where we're going. And yeah. it's like, there's they're they don't even know what they're doing tomorrow. Yeah. They, they're just looking at year 10 and yeah. I'm worried about today. Yeah. yeah. So right. ha- having a balance there is pretty critical. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 it and honestly, uh, I, I would even argue with a, a mixed animal practice e- even more so because you have both sides uh, yeah. you, you, oh, on a yeah. more amplified level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that my, um, so large animal in general, I should say food animal specifically, mm-hmm. lends itself a little bit more to that 30,000 foot view of thinking just because you yeah. do have to, I mean, there's certainly like the very small family farms, backyard farms, that kind of thing. Um, you know, where you have sometimes a, uh, a, a further on the human-animal bond spectrum than you would typically. Um, but in general, you, you are much more adept at applying that um, overall system, you know, bigger picture kind of management situation just because you're dealing with a herd level as opposed to an individual animal level. Um, and so I, it was a very interesting, I think, it, it was a good fit for me to then become a part of the PAW family because there is so much of that mindset on your guys' end. Um, like I said, the transition was kind of natural. Yeah, so. yeah, I, I think so too. I don't, <clears throat> I don't think there was much of a struggle there. I think, um, cause what's again, is we're kind of leading over to process. Um, one of the things that I think we'll probably touch on more in depth, um, maybe next week or the week after. Um, but it's kind of these like, uh, uh, tandem graphs or charts that we have about competence and confidence. Um, and yeah, so that, I guess that's where when we, when we do work with, um, you know, new veterinarians or new tech, uh, veterinary nurses or anyone's coming into the organization that when we have at least a certain level of confidence coming into the organization that, Hey, Hey, you know, we, these people might actually have their stuff together. I don't think we're going to have unnecessary conflict. There probably will be some, um, is it lends itself so much more to having an environment in which we can teach an environment, you know, kind of our educational type system. Um, but again, for you, of course, coming in with kind of that little bit more of a systems type thinking, it would feel very Mm -hmm. much natural that we're talking really big picture solutions in very small policies. And I think that's where we kind of talk about our, um, clarity and consistency consistency as Ben had mentioned a few minutes ago that's where we kind of feel like we lose people you mm-hmm. know along the way is some people just don't really even care on the justification on why things are that's just the way it is mm-hmm. um 
but I think, you know, one of the other things uh, uh, with Caroline that uh, you're, uh, I, I like that you're open about being the devil's advocate for is sort of the mental health side of the profession, mm-hmm. um, at least in some capacity. But I think, you know, uh, when we, you know, look at some of these online forums and so on and so forth, but I think that's where we start to see a lot of the individual disparity in their workplaces is they can call it a toxic work environment. You know, we can say that there are mental health issues, but some of it may actually be just that is do we have an organization where a practical thinker is shoved into constant systems or a systems thinker that is constantly shoved into practical thinking is that if it bleeds through the entire organization where you have basically just one or the other, you know, Mm -hmm. we try to have both, we try to have both systems and practical, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where I think, you know, uh, uh, and you know, you can probably attest to that at least in some capacity that it, it would definitely increase the amount of unnecessary conflict, at least on a base level, just having that difference in administrative structure versus, um, you know, sort of the um, employees, you know, as well to, to admin. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of, uh, I explained it a little bit um, differently with, you know, some of the reasoning for why I left um, my last practice and how I explained it to people. And you would probably say it's, it's a different in um, the system's mentality and getting bogged down in the details and not um, not have it, it's basically a clash of different uh, ways of thinking and not having the openness to be able to facilitate two different styles of thinking. Sure. But how I how I always phrase it to people um, <laughs> is that if you're if you're dating a guy and you get to this point in your relationship where you are like okay we need to start thinking about like is he the one is he the one that i want to spend the rest of my life with or not and if he's not the one you want to spend the rest of your life with then why are we still dating and that kind of can happen i think with veterinarians too and clinics is you know you feel like you're stuck in this relationship and you're like where is this going like where where do we see ourselves 20 years from now like am i still going to be stuck here day-to-day whatever and so yeah Yeah, what's what's that saying it's like um don't continue to do a bad idea or to, to execute a bad idea just because you spent a lot of time deciding it, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't continue to, you know, it, but I think that's, you're exactly right. I think that's where, um, a lot of people and maybe not even just our profession, but just, I think maybe po- potentially where our, you know, uh, culture and service point is in the country. It's like, you just kind of sack in, you know, and you're like, mm-hmm. well, I don't, I, you know, it's like Katie said in her podcast, she's like, well, what else was I supposed to do? Right. You know, it's like, um, uh-huh. you're exactly right. It, but, but, but again, a lot of people who do get bogged down in that it's like, well, you know, I've known this boyfriend for a long time and we've been together. I don't really have a great reason to break up. And, you know, I guess maybe I'll yeah, just I really don't want to have to put myself out there again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do, yeah. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I think even taking it one step further and, you know, maybe not necessarily exclusively using the relationship type and it is, it is very much a professional relationship. Um, but I think that's another thing where veterinary professionals get themselves stuck because if you have a scenario where there are very limited options where you live, so maybe you live a bit more remotely, um, and there is only a one clinic or a two clinic option and your significant other is in their job is what's keeping you in that area. 
you know, so right. for, you know, for, um, you know, you, it's a bit different. It's like, well, you know, my significant other's job is definitely keeping is in this area, but we have hundreds of options, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe not hundreds, it's probably in the double digits, but a lot, it's a lot, <laughs> you know, either yeah. way you have that ability. Um, and that's where, f you know, for me, even, even taking that professional relationship status, it's like, like, you know, you when I think that's the message, message not, not just in this particular podcast, podcast, but any, it's like, like there's, there's so much opportunity out there. Well, the thing that I think keeps a lot of people from making the jump out though, is, is number one, absolutely not realizing the opportunity that's there. Sure. But, uh, secondly would be, um, creating the justification to actually leave because it's more than as much as we love to say to ourselves that it's, you know, it is a self-focused decision. It's not yeah. right. Cause you know that if you leave a workplace, it's going to greatly impact clients, yep. um, especially in your coworkers, yeah. right? There, there's a lot of other moving variables that you have to create a, 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 a very legitimized justification to yourself to put those other people through that for most people. Yeah. Um, and, and for, uh, I, I would say that our industry lends uh, to that decision being even more difficult because we get high empathy type people yeah. where they're very focused on the team impact of what am I leaving behind? And that is uh, ultimately, I think in a lot of cases is going to outweigh the potential benefits of an exit yeah. uh, for themselves. Yeah. yeah. But, at the, but at the same time, because I've, I've struggled with this as well. Like I always have, the, the guilt of, you know, leaving and, oh, everyone's going to be so sad and whatever. But at the same time, it's a little bit of like a selfish perspective to think about how you leaving is going to impact everybody else. Because, I mean, yes, there are practices where it is a, it's a substantial change for a veterinarian, especially a senior veterinarian, to leave. But at the end of the day, like, life goes on. Yeah. I mean, no one, no one is so important that you leaving brings absolutely everything to a standstill. So you're, I mean, you're hinting at a lack of narcissism then. <laughs> <laughs> on my part? Yes, or yes, <laughs> yes, yes, okay. yes. A, la yeah, a lack on your part. You're exactly <laughs> right. Like someone thinking themselves so important, you know, but that you're, I think what you've touched on is a very, very interesting point um, because I would argue that those individuals who uh, provide themselves with an, a, a large amount of self-worth, which is of course myself, right? So I, I know that I am in yes. the world of high, high self-worth. Yes. Um, we can or cannot call that narcissism if you want. I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> But I think what you've touched on is a very interesting point is that it, it still is this sort of individual centered perspective where it's I hold mm -hmm. myself in a significantly high regard. Well, none of these people can go on without me. But while I stay here, none of them respect me to the level by which I feel I, I should be respected. You know, so right. I would say those two things going hand in hand, I think you can dial down from that, of course, and just saying like objectively, oh, no, shit, like I carry 75% of the workload, like just in the numbers, they'll probably get hosed if I leave. Right. Um, but you're exactly, right. you're exactly right. But like, like, yeah, even, even in that scenario, though, like give it a year, that practice is going to be, they're going to have bounced back. If yeah. you, you know, I mean, yeah, there might be people that you were friends with or whatever, and they'll sure remember you, but I mean, they'll be back to, you know, whatever they were doing before, I guarantee within like a year's time. Yeah. Every, every practice that I have left that, you know, it's, it's a struggle sometimes to find somebody to replace you, but 
once they do, I mean, life goes on. They adapt and change, and the world moves on. It's just, you know, so part of the deal. So what you're referring to, Caroline, though, is your ability to have perspective in a difficult decision. So I think what uh, what what I was kind of referring to in in that thought process is if you look mm-hmm. at if if when you look at our industry overview, one of the th- big three problems is a loss of self worth. A very reasonable way to build your own self-worth is to believe yourself to be more important than you potentially are or actually mm-hmm. are, right? So if if I am uh, in a disparaged and hierarchical environment, the only defense mechanism I have to my self-worth is myself. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's very, very possible, especially if I'm more just in, in the day-to-day, to just believe that it's like, man, if it weren't for me, this place would fall right. apart and, and honestly believe it. Yeah. And it's really hard to have the perspective of if, if you, you know, if you've been in the industry your whole life, uh, you know, your, your, your postgraduate life, it, you, you probably don't have a lot of exposure to the way that business businesses do recover like that. And you are absolutely right. The majority of practices and businesses as a whole do come back. They do recover. They find the right people. They just yeah. figure it out. No mm-hmm. one is really that irreplaceable. However, right. it, it the defense mechanism that I think builds in a lot of people's minds is just that where it's like, man, like this is this is where I have to be not yeah. only it, 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 for other people, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, that even to bleed over, I mean, on kind of our past story about, you know, what ultimately kept Katie and I in central Wisconsin was sort of that empathetic side. I mean, as, as much as I don't want to admit it, empathy is what kind of kept us around, yeah. <clears throat> you know, for me to be the only full-time veterinarian for years. I mean, everyone was in and out of our clinic in under 12 months. I mean, I think maybe we had one vet go maybe a year and a half, but for the most part, everyone was in and out within eight, eight months, 12 months. Um, that was just that it was the empathetic component. It's like, all right, well, if we're going to build something, we can still create change here, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think there is, it Mm kind of ebbs and flows, but, um, you know, Caroline, I think what you had said about, um, selfish, you know, is that I, I think it's, it's important to be, um, selfish in a selfless way, you know, where it's, you, you have the ability, it's like you fix yourself first, you know, you have to be happy as an individual, you have to be, you know, uh, fulfilled as an individual. And as that starts to occur and you start to have more confidence because that confidence, of course, it can come from self-assurance, uh, that confidence can come from just overall conviction. I just know I'm better than what I'm being told I am sometimes, uh, unfortunately confidence comes from an unaccountable place mm-hmm. um, that's where it, it, it becomes difficult so I think when we look at businesses from a loss standpoint and saying the loss of talent um, the other kind of thing that's running in tandem here it's you know obviously it's like you know you're out west it's like I want to be a little bit closer to home that's just that's just a variable that isn't going to be fixed in process um, but it's when we start to then look at uh, the good loss so uh, or, I'm sorry uh, bad loss I apologize the, the bad loss of good people where we are losing accountable people um, and I think that gets back a bit more to your relationship uh, uh uh, example, you know, of just saying like, mm-hmm. is this the one that I'm going to be sacking a ton of time in? Um, but if this is not the environment where I'm gaining, uh, you know, shared purpose, shared well-being, you know, some degree of fulfillment, then you're exactly right. It's time to get out and move. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually, to its uh, credits, that's where uh, our education system came from. 
is uh, we had uh, basically when you look at our education system, tiers one, two, three, and four, they all have uh, time markers. So mm-hmm. uh, tier one is 40 hours, tier two is 90 days, and then tier three is essentially every six months mm-hmm. on just giving us the opportunity to assess and say, do you still want to be here and do we still want mm-hmm. to keep you here? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, that's, again, sort of how we sort of mitigate that on just saying, is this a long-term professional relationship or not? Gotcha. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, uh, let's see, I'm just, I'm keeping an eye on the clock for us. Caroline's going to have to uh, take a step out for a few moments, uh, uh, just, to, uh, from that way, but I think we're sitting pretty good here for a few more. Um, so anyway, yeah, as we kind of, uh, you know, are swinging this pendulum over to the process side, um, <coughs> what did we, uh, what were we talking about just the other day, Caroline? Um, which one yes <laughs> yes yes yeah exactly we're always talking about something but I, I know I had it, it was it was certainly with uh, it was process right um, so we were talking about um, you know sort of uh, one of one of the th- things which we haven't really talked much about in any of these podcasts on one of our process things is um, patient separation mm. right mm, so yeah. you know for us I think one of the significant differences of our clinic um, than most others is that uh, we have no patients in the exam rooms uh, while we consult with caregivers and we don't call them exam rooms we call them education rooms so for us, it's a little bit of renaming, uh, but on the other hand, it, the renaming supports the process that we don't have a patient with us in the room. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, <coughs> one such example that uh, we had uh, with Caroline working here this last weekend was an individual who didn't understand that process. And for them, it's uh, as a caregiver coming in, didn't understand the process, which a lot of people don't, uh, but we, uh, as Ben will attest to, uh, the number of times of which we tell people that process so when they call, yeah. when they get there, yeah, most uh, most it's an average of three per person that they yeah. hear it. Yeah, that way, if they are not comfortable with that, we're not you know sort of uh, broadsiding them. You know, when right. they come in, the walk-ins, right. of course, will be a little bit different. So, um, you know, uh, what this had led into is uh, one: we don't have the patients in the room, mm-hmm. right? Um, but as we kind of carried the conversation through, um, the discussion between Caroline and I was um, that we also don't go over individual results. So we don't go over x-rays in the room mm-hmm. um, from a blood work standpoint. I, again, it's, I think the blood work side is still a little bit variable. I think some of our vets still do blood work, still take x-rays on their, uh, take a picture with their phone and go over it with people. But it was the theoretical discussion of the perception of value. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it started with me asking, why, Carlo? Why? Yes. <laughs> right, right. So uh, with that, of course, basically what it boiled down to is, is that and what we, again, will talk about as we get to process um, is when we look at our accountability ladder, you know, up to this point, when we look at accountability, we've been talking about it from a cultural and core value standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't really talked about it from a process standpoint. Um, but for the tiers of accountability, when we start to look at um uh, just how we make decisions about case management and how we present that information to caregivers, um, we don't necessarily have to spend time on the reality, right? That was the discussion mm-hmm. that we had was like, if I'm going over x-rays with these people, w- why can't I just tell them face to face, the x-rays didn't really show signs of an obstruction. However, um, if we would like to proceed through in determining whether or not the patient has an obstruction, because not all foreign material can be seen on x-rays, a barium series is the next most logical conclusion. That 
25 seconds or however long that took um, from an efficiency standpoint. Uh, we don't need that additional time and reality of saying, here, look at this one gas pattern right there mm -hmm. um, and bringing them into that. Um, and what we jump to is basically out of the number five reality on our accountability ladder, we just jump into number seven and number eight. Mm -hmm. We just say, what is the solution? Okay, well, the x-rays mm -hmm. didn't show clear signs of obstruction. The solution to this is we continue to push forward on saying, well, x-rays could potentially with barium show an obstruction. Uh, blood gas could potentially show an abnormality that would support an obstruction. Um, you know, and then, of course, moving into the uh, treatment and um, you know, the treatment side, there are some options uh, in that capacity versus hospitalization versus at-home management. Um, so taking all of that time to then d set up this particular question, <laughs> how did you feel at the beginning of that conversation towards the end of that conversation? Because we had kind of conflicting views. You're like, well, of course I need to be going over this stuff with the people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, kind of. So I think, I think going into it, I didn't really, my feelings were kind of neutral. So, cause I had actually posed the question to Annie. I asked, hey, are we getting uh, viewing screens in the new clinic? And she just kind of chuckled under her breath and was like, you should ask Carlo about that one. Yeah. So that was, <laughs> yes. that was part of why I had called you. And then as you were talking to me about it, I just like, it, it was like your reasoning behind like why people do it. It was like, ding, light bulb, ding, yeah. light bulb, ding. And I was like, oh. So I started to feel bad because of course, like, I do a lot of these things. And for me, you know, being a more recent graduate and more recently involved in emergency medicine, it's like, it, it's still a crutch for me yes. to sit and go over um, things like blood work and radiographs in the room with caregivers. Um, it's just, I mean, it's something that I had, you know, learned or whatever, picked up along the way from watching other veterinarians work. Yes. Yes. And, yep. um, and so, but like I said, as you were explaining kind of the reasoning behind why the paw process is different, I was like, okay, yeah, like it's, it is, it is a very valid point. And, but my, my struggle, I guess, or, or our, um, our disagreement, I'll say, um, when we were having the conversation was about um, whether or not it is elitist to yes. skip going over the results and just go to ultimately the conclusion. Yes. Because to me, initially, it came across as like, well, why would you withhold that information? That's kind of how my brain interpreted it is like you're withholding the results from the caregiver, but we want them to be an equal part of this process. So I feel like we should be going over those results and everything with them. But the way that you explained it as that we are trying, we're not trying to um, make everybody a scientist. We're not trying to make everybody a chemist. We're not trying to whatever our ultimately our partnership with the caregiver comes down to more. We are giving you the interpretation of the test results the caregiver is the one who is making all of their decisions for the patient. And we want to streamline that process for them as much as possible in order to make the decision easier so that they're not overburdened with all of this technical information. And that's the other thing that I kind of struggle with a little bit is because I am a super, I'm super highly uh, on my, um, oh, Tricor. 
Yeah, on my TriCore assessment. I am very highly motivated by educational things. If you tell me you're going to teach me something, I'm there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I sort of operate under the assumption that everyone else is the same and that, you know, the more information I can give you about something that that's, you know, that's valuable to you. I, I want all of the knowledge and all of the information. And so um, your point, like I said, about distilling it all down to the core concept of what you're trying to get across, because you do, you hit that point sometimes where you're, you're explaining things to people and their eyes start to glaze over. Yeah. It's just, it's too much. And they're already, you know, it's some, some caregivers come in and it's a very emotional process. Their pet is very ill. And to then try and overburden somebody with, you know, all of this, trying to shove all of this information into their brain and then have them make a decision, a very sometimes emotional decision about the patient. It's just, it's a lot. So. Yeah, which is, I think, is a really substantial fail point in a lot of, yeah. you know, in a lot of settings. And I think one of the, to kind of build on that a little bit, um, one of the things that I often talk about now, again, we're still swinging over to process here, is when I go into a consultation with caregivers, um, I'll kind of start, I'll kind of make the joke as we move through it. So we'll use vomiting as an example and we'll say, okay, um, uh, vomiting, it, there's a, you know, 101 different things that can cause vomiting. We try to lump them into two main categories. We say these are either issues with the gastrointestinal tract or an issue with the body that's simply manifesting as a gastrointestinal issue. So we call those primary gastrointestinal problems and secondary gastrointestinal problems. So we start to diagnostically then look at saying, how do we rule out primary problems and how do we rule out secondary problems? That's basically the split where on the primary gut side, you have imaging, like mm-hmm. x-rays and barium and ultrasound. And uh, there are v- some few specialty blood tests, but for the most part, bio- surgical biopsy is your best. Mm-hmm. The other swing is then going to be, all right, well, if you're testing the body, that's blood work and urine testing and hormone testing and all these other different types of things. So mm-hmm. when we have just this vague vomiting patient, um, I kind of make the joke to caregivers. I say, one of the two big differences you'll come across from a doctor standpoint is you'll have a clinician on one side and a mm-hmm. diagnostician on mm-hmm. the other side. Now, I'm not sure these are necessarily universally defined terms, but it's how I define them and it's how I use them to yep. basically prove a point. Yep. And I tell people this. I say, on one hand, you have a diagnostician who says, we need to run all of these tests because we need this data before we can make a decision. Right. On the other side of the fence, you have a clinician who says, I don't really need any of those tests because I only have seven drugs on my shelf. So we're just going to try one to seven. Seven reasonable, even if they're not on my shelf, there's seven drugs that we're likely going to use regardless of official diagnosis. Correct. Mm -hmm. So what I often tell people is, I said, now for me, I said, I try to navigate both sides of the fence. I try to just kind of teeter between those. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I was taught, essentially, is that um, between your uh, uh, clinical history, the patient's signalment, which is their their breed and uh, gender and age and so on and so forth. So between history, uh, signalment, and then physical exam, that should get you 90% of the way to the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, I take it one step further in saying from those variables, you get three rule outs and one test. So for me, I often uh, have the challenge of the one test rule out on saying you should pretty much between history and physical exam be able to get pretty damn close to what the diagnosis is and have that one test help differentiate it. 
I tell people, I said, that's not every case. Sometimes we just have ones that elude us and those become very difficult. Um, I say, but there's going to be a stop point at some time. We need to look at your total budget. If you have $500, I don't want to spend $450 in tests and only right. have $50 to treat your patient. We are not serving the patient in that category. We are serving curiosity, at least in some capacity. And, and to go along with that, why do you, most caregivers don't show up to obtain a diagnosis? Sure. To no, be honest, like they, they show yeah. up to obtain a treatment plan. Correct. They might not realize it. Yes. Like yes. I need to just like my dog's sick. Yeah. I just got to go to the vet, but they're not going to be like, oh yeah, my dog's sick because it's got a GI, you know, Whatever. obstruction. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. They want it like, okay, I want my dog to get yeah. repaired. Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's then where, uh, basically on that, on that thing where so you have three rule outs in one test is, right. um, our tests are then elected to change our treatment plan essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and you're exactly right. They're coming there because their dog's in pain. They want the pain to go away. Mm-hmm. Do they care if it's, um, you know, osteoarthritis? Do they care? You know, it's like, well, it's going to have implications on long-term management, mm-hmm. but they essentially just don't want the dog to be in pain. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right. So um, that's then, uh, again, to kind of bring it back to how we split off from this and saying we have our diagnosticians and our clinicians. If we start to consistently, uh, quote-unquote, weaponize people with diagnostic value, because uh, this comes back to the perception of value, if all we do is constantly weaponize them and constantly focus them towards the test having the answer, we're going to lose the clinical perspective of the patient. So we're going to lose. Okay. So a perfect example is we got a geriatric feline patient, geriatric feline patient in end stage kidney failure. Mm -hmm. It's just what it is. That's where the patient is. Mm -hmm. This end stage renal failure patient, um, you know, of course there are several values we look at, but BUN and creatinine being the two, Mm -hmm. there's a new one through IDEX. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, BUN and creatinine traditionally are the ones that we use. Um, We'll just say high normal is 30 and two respectively. So we have a patient coming in uh, four or five times normal. I Mm -hmm. mean, we're at a hundred and five, right? So Mm -hmm. we're clearly past modest and we're full blown failure Mm -hmm. and we all we do is we talk to the people and say it's 105 we're at 105 our two values are 105 and you know last week they were uh uh, 99 and 4.9 so it's getting a little bit worse we need to hospitalize and we need to get those numbers down we need to get those numbers down because we're at 105 and then we end up hospitalizing this patient for one two days three days however long it takes Mm -hmm. and in that three-day time period while the patient is in our hospital it goes from 105 to 99 and 4.9. It got better. Yay. Still four times normal yeah. value. And, and, and so, so that's then that, Hey, look, right. Exactly. It did improve. Yeah. But if we, all we do is constantly focus these individuals on saying, here's the numbers, here's the numbers, here's the numbers, here's the numbers, here's the numbers. It's like, okay, hold on a second here. Is your cat puking its brains out every day? You know, do we have it on one, two, or three anti-nausea medications? Are we on antacids? Are we on H2 blockers? Are we on proton pump inhibitors? Are we on pain medications? You know, I mean, what are we on from a management standpoint? And what is this animal's actual quality of life? Right. So that's where, like I said, we have to really... And that's part of our process is we start to look at therapeutic budget, but it gets back to the three expenses that Mm -hmm. we talk about in our profession that often go unspoken. The three expenses in our profession, one is going to be monetary. So how much money do you have? How deep are your pockets? How can you recuperate that expense? Mm -hmm. So one is the monetary expense. The next is the emotional expense. So the emotional expense as a human is how much 
emotional money are you spending on yep. this particular problem? Is it devastating you that your patient is dying? Is it devastating you that your patient is in pain? That's the emotional side. We as a profession don't need to manage that. Uh, I don't think we need to add to it unnecessarily, but we are not therapists. Right. So for us, that's why our goal is then the third expense. Our mm -hmm. third expense comes from serving the patient. So the third expense is how much physically, what is the physical expense to our patient in going through this process? And as an example and saying, well, like, uh, a GI obstruction, right? So GI obstruction, relatively high financial expense, not too much emotional expense and not too much physical expense. You cut it out. The animal doesn't go septic and which is an 8% of case. Mm -hmm. um, animal discharges home. Just make sure it doesn't eat any more rocks. Um, right. You know, right. yeah. You flip the other way where it's, you know, we have a um, end stage kidney failure patient over three days who has marginal change in values. Uh, okay, well, that's a high financial expense. It's a high emotional expense and it's a high physical expense. Right. So I think that's when we start to talk about our diagnosticians to our clinicians is essentially saying, how much are we actually asking this family to spend? Mm -hmm. How much are we asking them to spend financially, emotionally, and physically? Um, and that's again, and, and again, I know this is, this is kind of a huge spin from, you know, or it kind of shot off a little bit. I'm just saying, this is how the conversation that I have with caregivers in all of those scenarios, when I have the end stage renal failure patient, I always come back to how is your animal doing? Mm -hmm. How are we doing? Has this treatment plan worked? Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of people get sold on is hope. Yes. You know, they get sold on the concept that we might get better. A lot of people love to bank on that 1%. They love the 1%. They love the 5%. That's mm -hmm. what a lot of people like. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for us, yes, I agree. A lot, you know, our treatment plan and the diagnostic plan is ultimately up to the caregivers to make that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is very much a guided decision. Yes. So when it comes back to Caroline's point on saying, do we need to give them this number of 100 over? you know, five, or do we just say, no, this is like four to five times normal and clinically your cat is doing terribly. Right. Like where the, and to me, you know, my question comes, wh what is the value of a veterinarian? If all they do is tell you numbers. Yes. There's to me, to me, there's no value in that. Yeah. Like you're not, you're, you're, you're reading it, but you're reading the numbers, right? The, yeah. the value of any diagnostic is not the diagnostic. It is the interpretation of it. Correct. Therefore, what you need to deliver is the interpretation. Just do it well. And yeah. that it ultimately is where the value of, veter of a veterinarian and any doctor ultimately yeah. comes into play. And I think the, the reason that uh, clinicians tend to lean on that sort of stuff potentially could be uh, sourced out of a loss of self-worth. Sure. Uh, it could be sourced out of a um, lack of skill set in conflict uh, management. Sure. They could be extremely conflict averse. Yeah. Uh, they could be super high bond spectrum aligned and not willing and able to have the hard conversation. Um, there's a lot of ways, yeah, right? Oh yeah. Oh so yeah. then it's a case-by-case -case sort of thing. Absolutely. But I would make the argument that Ultimately, the in you know we were working on a, a small piece of like what is the value of a veterinarian, right? Right, like, right. like why do I have to spend this much just to have you yeah. do an exam and consult right. with me? Right. Because there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. It's just it, it, it's relatively intangible to you because you see thirty percent of it. 
Right. Right. Uh, it's so like we have to, I would say that um, because of that fact, and I, this is more than just at PAW, but with everyone in the industry as a whole is, is to create as much value as possible. Yeah. That's standard business practice, right? right? Yes. Like where yeah. can you create value? And ultimately that's, that's why, you know, I, I had, I had tweeted something of, of month or two ago it was like never never discount your exam and consultation fee right because all you're doing is devaluing yourself yes never you know i would say never just provide numbers from a diagnostic never just provide a radiographic image of like broken leg right Uh, there's not value in that like you have to have something that goes with it yeah it's Um, this the accountability component mm -hmm. is you're becoming accountable to serving the patient by providing um essentially uh, i mean we call them treatment plans but in our accountability ladder it's basically you're coming in with solutions that are implementable when you're in you're stepping into the firing line when you do that yeah and that's i think ultimately that's what a lot of people are afraid of is like if i miss i'm the one that's going to take this shot yeah and a lot of people don't know how to handle that yeah and that's you know that's why um what i think we had talked about it on here potentially not but basically you know it went in the event that you miss with the diagnostic right like yeah. you put yourself out in the fire line financially oh, you might sure. not have realized it but yeah. now you didn't you obtained no differential in yes. all of this information and now yes. you have to go tell that person yes. that you just spent 180 of their dollars yes. to learn what's not going on yes yes that can also be a very hard conversation yes. so you're getting it on both yeah. sides yeah which i uh mentor uh new hires and mentees to have that conversation before the diagnostic arrives yeah. Yes. So I'll have where people, you know, the expectation is, well, I'm going to run blood work and this is going to find me the answer. No, 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 no. Actually, um, we're going to do blood work and hope that we don't find anything at all. And yeah. like, well, what is What do you mean you hope not to find something? Because the blood work we run, I, I was telling this, I said, it provides us with the, oh shit diagnosis. Right. You know, it's like, oh shit, your dog's in kidney failure. Oh, mm-hmm. sh-, you know, so, uh, you know, the, it kind of lightens the mood a little bit because I mean, I swear during consults, but you know, the, uh, <laughs> you know, but it does come, I, 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 what I tell people is lead with the unknown. Yeah. Um, and what I'll typically do is if I say, okay, we're going to perform this diagnostic. We're going to do blood work on a vomiting dog, mid, two years old, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Probably going to be pretty bland. Um, mm-hmm. But we're going to do this diagnostic, and it's going to go one of two ways. Either we're going to find an answer with that blood work, and then we're going to talk about what those abnormalities are and what our solutions are going to be there. So what I tell people is, I said, in the amount of time, the 18 to 24 minutes that it takes for this diagnostic to return, um, I want you to be thinking about what our next star- steps are anticipating that the blood work is normal mm-hmm. and they look at me and they're like well, what do you mean the blood work's gonna be normal i'll go through that again i know i said it a few minutes ago i probably went through it pretty quick however mm-hmm. we have gut problems and we have body problems we're mm-hmm. testing body problems with blood work or at least in some capacity um, but when blood work comes out your next decision is going to be we're going to take x-rays or we're going to treat in-house or we're going to send your patient home with treatments that's basically the three-piece outcome here i said so i just want to get you guys thinking about that in the next 20 minutes because what the worst part is is getting getting the caregiver in the hot seat you know to be like all right we're going to put all of our money we're put 180 dollars into this blood work and when i come back in the room you're going to be in the hot seat to then make a decision about what we do for um you know as as a result here and you have three minutes to decide once I give you all of these blood results all the numbers you get all of them 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where, like I said, I think it um, sort of sets them up for failure. They don't have enough time to think about it. Yeah. You know, they weren't clear on what was going to happen before you left. And that's where we can start to bridge sort of that quality and value component and saying, no, you're exactly right. I may come in with totally normal labs, um, but that is sort of what we want. That is an optimistic scenario. It means, you know, we don't have significant system failure um, and then we just need to know what we're going to do after that. Yeah, but there's so much value in a bad result. Yes. From the pr- like, yeah, from the like, perspective of like a formal answer. I've obtained a problem, yes. therefore I can obtain a viable solution. Yes. Is a, what I think See, a lot of people go with. Yeah. Yes and no, though, Ben, because like here's the thing about that. That's totally like the scientist perspective because I always think that too. Mm-hmm. I get frustrated with cases when you do test after test after test and everything comes back normal or inconclusive. Because me, as like having a scientific type mindset, I want the answer, right? I want to sleuth it out. I want to be able to give people like, this is what is wrong with your pet or your the patient. But, you know, unfortunately, and this is kind of what I have to come to terms with and what I try to convey to the caregivers is like, if I come back to you with test after test after test that's normal, that's a good thing. And I know you guys have talked about this before yeah. with getting test results from a referring veterinarian and then you know it basically they've eliminated all these things for you and the fact that we can eliminate those is not a bad thing so yeah but but i guess then is that ever is that explained right like it should be that's what i'm saying so if it's a if it is uh the negation of a diagnosis you can still create value in that i would say Mm -hmm. that if somebody walks in our doors and says this veterinarian just made me spend five hundred dollars and didn't give me any answers yeah it's like well they clearly didn't provide you the answers of what's not going on correct Yes, right. yes, yeah, because it, it, you still have a pie to provide. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still coming in the room. It just isn't an apple pie or a cherry pie. You know, it's like, it, it, and it's kind of the same thing I tell people when we do ultrasounds. I said an ultrasound is going to be similar to turn the lights off and you can see that there are two round fruits on the table. We know that there are round <laughs> fruits on the table. Flick the lights on, flick the lights on, and we know, oh, one's an orange and one is a grapefruit. You know, it's like we may have been able to determine one was an orange and one was a grapefruit because grapefruits, from a circle standpoint, grapefruits are much larger. Mm-hmm. So I tell people, I said, that's how ultrasound works. As ultrasound, I can tell you if we have a round fruit, but we'll need a biopsy to determine whether or not it's an orange or a grapefruit. You know, so, <laughs> but it works, you know. So, but again, yeah. that's, you know, that that's part of the discussion, though, in saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of to both your and Caroline's points is like if you do have someone who's getting upset that the blood work didn't tell you anything, you probably failed on the back end by providing an expectation or value of that product. If you allowed them to walk out of, you know, signing the estimate and walking out of the ed room on saying, oh, I'm going to spend this money and I'm going to get this answer, you've probably already failed. Yeah. Um, and that's where, you know, I think at least in some regard, I don't want to say it necessarily relates back to Caroline's crutch because I feel I agree I think it's there for a lot of us very early on in our um, careers where we are able to hold this ab this piece of paper or this x-ray in our hand to say this is the value mm-hmm. you know I have it and I can go through it with you and I can talk myself through it but also I can talk you through it so you understand that this is particularly complex um, and I, I think uh, Caroline I agree I think if it's a crutch I think that's acceptable mm-hmm. um, but if eventually the broken leg heals, you know, you right. don't, you don't have a crutch forever, you know, but, and that's, yeah. And, 
and I hope not. And that's, that's the difficulty with, you know, imposter syndrome. And I know, um, it's something that you guys have talked about a little bit before, but, um, a lot of new graduates, obviously that's, and, and even older veterinarians struggle with imposter syndrome. And, you know, you just have that feeling some days where you're like, I, I'm not actually a real doctor. I don't actually know what I'm doing. And you just feel like a fraud. And so sometimes you, like I said, that I use that paper or that, that picture as a crutch to say, this is what, this is here. And this is what I'm using to, to justify that. Like, you know, I have something to talk to you about. I have, I, yeah. I, I'm justifying my, my doctor title, um, with, with these results. And like you said, Carlo, the results are not what's important. The the importance is what you, all the back knowledge and everything that you've done over the past, however many years as a veterinarian, that's the important thing, not the piece of paper. Yes. Yes. It's a valuing oneself. So it's, um, and I, I think, uh, the word that (laughs) I I don't know if Ben, I know doesn't like the word triggered. Um, but oh. one of one of <laughs> one ben does not like that yeah, word. One of one of the ben words is triggered by the word trigger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he just got yes. He uh, vein just popped out of his head. Uh, if you were sitting here, you could see it. We could both laugh at it. Got that HD. Yeah, rolling. we got the we're HD good. now rolling. Yeah, we got <laughs> significantly improved equipment. Um, but uh, the word I used was charade. Yeah. So for me, I view going over x-rays in the room as a charade. Yeah. Not, it, it doesn't do anything than um, sort of, uh, you know, what do we say is the two biggest problems in our profession, inefficient process and unnecessary conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we if we are presenting someone with something that they don't know for the first time, it one is inefficient for mm-hmm. us to go through this because it doesn't provide any additional value. And again, from an accountability standpoint, it doesn't actually do anything from aiding in our solution or the ability to implement that solution um, some of it comes back to, of course, the core value of trust, right? So you have to establish yeah. a large amount of trust in a short period of time in the um, after-hours setting with people you've never met before, which is a very, very intimidating standpoint, uh, intimidating thing from a confidence standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we'll we'll talk more about these grids uh, probably uh, in a couple of weeks or whatever. But our the, the two grids we talk about are uh, the, this one in particular. It's it's the X and Y axis of uh, on the X axis we have competence, and on the Y axis we have confidence. So when you know when we start to talk about imposter syndrome um, as an educator, as a mentor, the way in which I see um, imposter syndrome is people who actually do have a considerable amount of competence. Um, but it's the confidence that is lacked. And I think when we, and I think w- what we have identified why, yes, that is commonly known as imposter syndrome, I see that as being a significant cultural risk to the practice. Because what we have is, is, you know, an individual who, I don't want to say it's an oh, woe is me type thing, but when we are in sort of this lack of confidence position where we do in fact have a high level of c- competence, um, it's very easy for us to kind of flip around to self victimization. You know, I don't know this today. I'm just not doing that great today is this. And it's like, you know what? I can almost 100% guarantee you that my plumber feels that way. I can almost 100% guarantee that an apprentice and electrician feels that way. Yeah. You know, so I, th- I think the, the thing we take out of it is that 
you know, again, and I don't want to say for some reason that we as veterinarians aren't special, we're just unique. Um, but when we look at some of these bigger issues like imposter syndrome, it is not special to the veterinary profession. We just have a unique, no. we just have a unique application because we happen to be doctors on animal patients. Um, but that's, that's one thing that I guess, you know, when we talk about imposter syndrome, it's the, then the lack of ability to comfortably fail. And from a cultural risk perspective too, when uh, just from the outsider looking in, when you uh, when you see an individual that you perceive as high competence, but they do not exude confidence, yes, what that typically turns into the 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 talk path in the the other person's head is, man, if they're that good at it and they don't believe in themselves, that means I'm terrible at it. Yeah, sure, like it just degrades them yes. without without any level of intention of doing that. Yeah, culturally within the practice, which you're referring to, we have yes. two veterinarians standing next to each other, yeah. essentially, yeah. yeah. I would even take it one step further on it being actually, um, not. it is self-perpetuating, but it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm -hmm. right? So it's the same thing where the cultural risk in one hand is going to be, yeah, if you have other veterinarians come work with you who are less experienced and they feel that experience is how you gain confidence, which it's not. Um, however, um, if you then bring that over to the caregiver side of things mm -hmm. where it's you come in they already assume you're a doctor and you have your shit together and then you're just kind of like eh, eh, yeah, shaking in your yeah, boots a little bit know. <laughs> you know so then it can, yeah. it can that's the self-fulfilling part is it completely breaks down trust um, because when we start to talk about confidence there's actually three parts to confidence one is self-assurance the next one is trust and the third one is conviction so if we already have sort of this you know we, we've already established a scenario where we don't trust ourselves and now we are causing people to not trust us because we don't trust ourselves is you're never actually going to be able to get out of a lack of confidence scenario. That's why I said experience doesn't help you gain yeah. self-assurance experience doesn't help you gain trust or conviction. Um, and that's where, uh, like I said, I, I'm not saying imposter syndrome doesn't exist. Um, all I say, mm -hmm. you know, my, my solution to imposter syndrome is let's stand the hell up. You know, I mean, we should be having a high level of self-worth. I mean, by God, we made our way through, you know, undergraduate <laughs> veterinary school, the freaking Navali. Yeah. You know, we deal with clients every day. We got shit living, shit dying. It's like, you know, that in of itself is like, holy crap, we are the elite of the elite intelligence. You know, I think I talked about this two weeks ago about my uh, my individual self-worth. I was a hundred of 1,800 applicants. Like, dear God, we're already at top tier. Let's just start acting like it. Um, but, yeah. again, you know, not to completely grandstand uh, about imposter syndrome, but um, I, again, I think the big takeaway is that it can be very, very self-fulfilling and really be used as a persecutor for you to self-victimize. Yeah. And this is where I'll be your guys' uh, what did you call me earlier? Devil's advocate? Yes, yes, yes. yes. No, that's um, why. That, and I love so, that. I love that. Yeah. Because I, I will, as someone who suffers from this, it, it's very, uh, it sometimes feels like people are telling you like oh just do this like the solution is so simple and I mean a lot of times especially with yourself and Ben when you're explaining something sometimes it can come off as like this is a very simple solution and I'm like but why how I don't understand and then once you go through kind of your explanation and the step-by-step -step, like following the process you realize it really is kind of a simple solution but I as far as imposter syndrome goes, like, yes, standing up and, you know, having confidence in yourself, that is the solution, but it's very much a long and hard road to 
get there. Oh, God, yes. And, yes. yeah. And yeah. so I, I am in, I would say I'm in, like, the transition period. You know, um, it's, you go through kind of different phases. And, and my, like, kind of current way that um, my imposter syndrome presents as, and I'm going to use another relationship example, so I don't know why, but um, as, like, a needy girlfriend. So I am the one in the relationship who, like, I don't actually believe that my significant other has real feelings for me. I don't actually believe that I know what I'm doing sometimes. And so how that presents itself is I have to find what I call a, a doctor or doctor, somebody who is, who is more experienced, who is more experienced than me to, um, assert that I am doing what is right, that I'm on the right track or that I'm doing the right thing. And it's basically just like, I need someone to hold my hand for a minute and reassure me that I already had the information. I already had like the correct plan. I know what I'm doing. I just don't believe that I know what I'm doing. And I need somebody to like, give me that, like puff up my chest you know, oh. I do know what I'm doing. That that boost yes. of self confidence for a minute. No, um, absolutely. So that I can, yeah. Yeah. And no, so, I don't. Like, I don't yeah. even think you're. I don't even think you're being the devil's advocate. That's just how it should be. Yeah. <laughs> that's that is that is the basis of our education system and what it is. That's why you know, like I think when we talked on the phone the other day, I was like, you know, I'm like, oh my god, I gotta get to work, and I was like, oh crap, I gotta shower, and I'm like, but I need to have this conversation with Caroline. That's actually that is my biggest problem with imposter syndrome is that we do not have a culture in which you can, in which you can be vulnerable, and we don't have a culture in which you can fail comfortably. Everyone is allowed to have the sensation of imposter syndrome but it should be fleeting. It's like, oh, I was right. uncomfortable how to do this one thing this one time. I just need someone to explain it to me so I understand it. And then, oh, yeah, I guess I was right all along. That feels pretty good. Mm -hmm. But if, yeah. but that's not, the, that's not the state of affairs in our profession. The state of affairs in our Correct. profession is that all we have is hierarchy. All we have is disparagement. We have an overall loss of self-worth. And no one's standing the hell up to be like, no, we got it. We got it. And let's just yep. do it. So I don't think you were being a devil's advocate. You were simply stating how it should be. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, yeah, that's a good point. Like sometimes, you know, if you are vulnerable to, um, as I put it, a doctor or doctor, yes. and they decide to pull hierarchy with you, what they'll end up doing rather than affirming your, um, you know, what you were already planning on doing or making you feel better about yourself is a lot of times um, – they feel like they have to add in another two cents mm. like oh you were you were doing pretty good but also this or oh you forgot this thing and so it's like a yeah but and so you don't end up getting that self that boost of self-confidence that you need because you're like oh i'm still forgetting something do you know what that, that is though caroline that's just the other individual edifying themselves yeah. Right. Most of yeah. the time that that's someone who has a lack of because humility. the other the person that you're talking to is probably experiencing almost the identical <laughs> the thought pattern thing. that you are. <laughs> yes. So it's like right. ooh, an opportunity for me to create value. How about you add this? Like, oh, you missed yeah. this thing or like maybe you didn't miss this, but maybe this would be helpful. Yeah. But they don't present it in a way that it is um, a critical thinking situation within the case. It's just like, oh, this 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 
add this one thing. Yeah. Like you missed this yeah. thing. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, that's disparagement. It, yes. Right. It, yeah. it, it's, it's not, again, not intentional yeah. because we right. don't, we're not realizing the result. And that's, uh, I, I believe it was last week or two weeks ago. Why I had mentioned about you know, think, like watching your words extremely deliberately because the the way that uh, I've watched you interface with Dr. Katie is it is a um, it's more of a teamwork type situation where when you are when you present a uh, case question, Katie's ext- very deliberate about making it a a thought provoking item so you yes. can build the case. Not the, well, Dr. Katie needs to edify herself on this one. So just go do this, 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 and you'll be great. And that's systems versus practical. So yeah, you're, it's just taking the, it's the, it's the slowdown. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 We talk about, I don't think we've talked about it enough, but yes, our slowdown, slowdown guide. We have several different things that make you slow down and Mm -hmm. think about a case more thoroughly. Right. But yeah, no, I agree with you. But a big part of that when you do slow down is, is when you have to be more critical of your thoughts. Ultimately the fact that you put it through a vetting mechanism, it puts inherent value in it. If it's just like bam, 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 like it's a G, it's a vomiting case. I'm just going to do this, 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 and it just is what it is. There's you kind of devalue yourself because again, you're leaning on diagnostics or you're leaning on just standard treatments or whatever it is. You don't add anything to it. That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you kind of look at the uh, pharminarian. Uh, if you've ever heard of those, uh, I'm assuming that it's a veterinarian no. that works on a farm. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, no. Have you oh, pH farm. pH. Yes. Okay. So it's uh, ah. it's the perception that you have. Uh, as an example, I gave while you were off phone of the clinician, where they're like, "Well, I only have these seven ways to treat, so I'm just going to treat it this way." Mm-hmm. The pharmacian is basically just that. I don't test anything. I'm just going to be a pharmacist and just give you a bunch of drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know a perfect example of why that doesn't work is mm-hmm. when we have patients with like chronic skin issues and chronic ear infections. It's like, oh, that patient most likely has some underlying allergy, whether it's an environmental allergy or food allergy or whatever it happens to be. Um, but when we then say a pharmacian would approach a case who's had 15 ear infections this year, they're going to treat it with 15 different drugs this year. Oh, so it's there. See which one sticks. Yes, yes, exactly. So there isn't the connection to then say, oh, uh, well, you've been in this many times this year. Maybe there's something else going on. Um, That's 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 where I think clinical medicine fails uh, in the exact opposite end of the the spectrum of where diagnostic medicine fails. Mm -hmm. Um, So we kind of talked about the difference between a clinician and a diagnostician. But yes, the pharmacian is the really far left on Hmm. the clinical scale. Interesting. Yeah. Which doesn't have a place. I mean, you you know, I think there are times where you can treat things you know i mean caroline you see a lot of that too of course on the large animal side from you know not necessarily herd health but individual cow management yeah and it's funny that because that's actually the kind of scenario that i was thinking of in my head is like we have that happen sometimes where clients will call with a question about a particular animal they'll say oh my cow has pneumonia what should i treat her with and if if you if you um, I don't want to. I'm trying to think of a, a, a way to say this. I'm using my words. Uh, what did you say, Ben? I'm trying to choose my words very deliberately. Correctly. Yes, yes. <laughs> very deliberately. Um, so, I guess a more experienced veterinarian or someone who is looking at the bigger picture—that's probably the best way to put it. A veterinarian who's looking at the bigger picture 
uses that opportunity of what should I treat my cow with to then talk about things like management and what kind of environment do you have her in? If she Does she have comorbidities, things that are occurring in her life right now that could be affecting her overall health? How do her herd mates look? And what do we need to do, you know, for them in case this particular disease is transmittable to other uh, patients and kind of all of those things. So your very simple question of what do I treat my cow with can then become this long educational process of, you know, it's like a segue into, right, it's a a segue into a much uh, more important conversation, honestly, um, because you get to talk more about the big picture and what our, um, you know, our plan should be for the whole herd. Um, And ultimately, you know, it it helps with, um, you know, having protocols and things in place that we can help ultimately like prevent disease is the goal. Um, we wanna get to that point where we can do things like vaccination and uh, changing facilities, changing the way that we handle animals um, so that we don't have to treat them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, even, uh, even on that end, um, I was really uh, intrigued by your um, process of milk culture routes. Mm-hmm. In that in that same world, so as we swing our pendulum over to the process side, you know we say that uh, wellness and ailment management or appropriate ailment management is the foundation of any process. Is basically prevent the disease and detect it early and manage it <laughs> thoroughly. Um, and that's where I, I was I was really intrigued by the by the milk process um, uh, milk culture routes, which um, I think can be implemented anywhere. Um, but if you got a few minutes, can you? Uh, we'll just say fill Ben in. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking. Um, yeah yeah. so um when i first started working at paw um i was working in a clinic where i was hoping to start a um a milk culture lab and so basically um mastitis is one of the most important diseases that we manage in dairy cattle. And it is also subsequently one of the most expensive things to treat and deal with depending on the prevalence um, that's occurring in your herd. And so because I don't that know expense, how Carlo... Uh, not, not to interrupt, but because that expense is both on the cost of the drugs going into the animal, but also the loss of milk on withhold. Mm-hmm. So you're spending right. money and you're not recuperating yep. it. That's the, the, the... And the loss of production, too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. And, um, and I don't even remember how we ended up talking about it, but basically I had this big idea of wanting to start up a milk culture lab at, at my clinic and... Um, Carlo was kind of helping me work through the process of how how I would go about such a thing. Uh-huh. Um, but basically, the idea is that um, rather than having a um, a farmer, most of the time they detect mastitis on their own. They are milking cows. They are milking a cow, and her milk looks abnormal, and so they decide to treat her with antibiotics. So it's a it's a farm farmerian. Basically, you're picking taking a drug and, and just using it and hoping that it works. And a lot of times mastitis can actually end up being self-limiting or it can be caused by pathogens that are not susceptible to the antibiotics we use. And so um, there's kind of a middle, a middle diagnostic test you can do where you pull a milk sample and culture it before you treat. And there's actually been a lot of research that shows that if you wait 
24 hours, like if you delay treatment by 24 hours, there's no difference in outcome as far as the cow's overall health. So basically, and so getting, getting the 24 hours test, essentially. Yep. And so the idea would be that farmers, rather than going through and treating these cows that are getting mastitis, you would pull milk samples, my truck, whatever business, would come through every day and pick up those samples. They get plated on, uh, you know, for microbiology. The plates would then be incubated and they'd be read by a veterinarian and reported back to the farmer within 24 to 36 hours. And then that farmer could then make the decision of, do we treat this cow? Do we not treat this cow? Or do we ship this cow? And so it's, it's basically making an informed decision rather than kind of throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping that they stick. So, but sadly, you know, it, and basically, I'll throw it out there. If anybody's still interested in starting up this business plan, <laughs> that's what the interest is. Still very, very interesting. I was going to say, yes, Carlo's eyes are just lit up right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but but I, I think it's fascinating. It was, yeah, it has not been executed, but it, it was my, my master plan at one point. But not, I mean, you, there, but there is, like you said, I mean, there's studies in it, but you, I mean, know of a veterinarian who that was essentially his business. Like it was in a, was it was Idaho yeah. or California or something. California. Yeah, California. Yeah. Like that, that was the job. Yeah. You know, and I, I think yep. that's, I think that's remarkable from a herd wellness standpoint, yeah. you know, and especially when we start to talk about um, already the, you know, just significant limitations that, you know, a lot of producers have in today's world, mm-hmm. you know, especially with trade yep. issues. But talk yeah. about creating value in a small thing, like. You, you take what is, what has been standard, right? It's the, the idea of a a farm and Arian in that instance is, well, this is the way it's always been done, which again, as soon as I hear that, I just, I just hear the uh, T word. Yes. But also opportunity, like an opportunity to create valuable change in a, in a situation that probably needs it. As soon as that is the justification, as soon as the why is, well, this is the way it's always been done. I guarantee you that it's inefficient and I guarantee that it's creating unnecessary conflict because what's going to happen, right? Oh, you gave it the wrong antibiotic. Now I got to dump out another week's worth of production because you missed way to go. Well, what if you were to let me do this at the onset? Well, I didn't know about that. Like I can already hear the conversation in my head (laughs) versus like you, you educate the, in this instance, the herds caregiver, uh, producer, producer, right. And, and you provide the opportunity to have informed consent on a treatment plan that you can ultimately ensure like, yeah, are you going to have a little bit of an onset cost, but your treatment accuracy is going to go uh, significantly higher. So we can roll the dice and guess on this antibiotic before running this diagnostic, or we can just be right. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. All that is, is informed consent. (laughs) Yeah. And here's, so to go back to the thing that I didn't get to touch on yet (laughs) is, uh, you, you have this thought, for yourself, Caroline, and I know you and I have had this conversation a few times is like, for me, like I'm, I'm as close to a caregiver, I think as anybody that's really sad at this table can be is, uh, 
I don't understand where your lack of confidence is. <laughs> Caroline's. Yes. Yeah, no, she's. I, and, and, yeah. and the thing that, you know, as we, I, this is very new to you, Caroline, because it was new to me a few hours ago is like the idea of, of you know, we, we can we can we can feed competence as much as possible. That's what our education system does. It provides people the ability to be better mechanically, um, to do things in a more efficient, a more effective way. However, like I cannot create confidence in you as much as you know, right. you had mentioned like an individual, you want them to hold your hand, you want them to, for, to say good job. It's like, well, if that's the, if that is the expectation at some point, it will go away because yeah. you will either do your job really well and they will ultimately start to walk away from that because you're doing well or you won't improve and they will push you away because now you're not creating value. Like at some point that's going to go away. So for me, I look at somebody like yourself and honestly the majority of people that work at our clinic um that would would have a same thought pattern and i say why like just be confident in what you're doing and ultimately like if you make a mistake like just own up to it and just be better and to me i think it's more out of the willingness as i get a text message from gary v as i'm saying this by the way because this is totally a gary v thing (laughs) yeah um is like, just, just put yourself out there. Just, yeah. just give it a yeah. shot because yeah. ultimately the thing that makes a difference in this environment is you putting yourself out there and giving and giving something a shot and being confident about it, um, is creating more value f- than almost everyone else. Like, yeah, it, it, well, it, it, yep, go ahead. And it's, it's 100% tied to your fear of failing that you guys have talked about. And learning to fail forward yes. because that you know somebody and I'm, I don't know of any research on this but I would probably speculate that uh, imposter syndrome and very type A people who are perfectionists and have trouble with failure those two things are probably very highly correlated and I am 100% one of those people because I don't like to be wrong I don't like um, things to go wrong um, and failure is definitely something that I am afraid of so being in an environment like PAW where you guys encourage um, failing forward and learning from those mistakes where things aren't held against you um, that is very 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 beneficial for somebody who's type A and has imposter syndrome so and that's like and I'm going to challenge the idea of the imposter syndrome, though, at that point, because to me, what that sounds like is that the the circles that you run in have an absence of forgiveness. It's, uh, as it's, an industry whole, yes. Right. So yeah. It's, yeah. it's not that you... No, that's you, the frustrating part about imposter syndrome, yeah. But that, but you, the thing that you just said, Caroline, just told me you're not the broken one. Like no, you, what you, what that is is merely a symptom of another thing that is very broken. The entire fractured system, right? Yeah. Yes. So for me, and again, I 
I think that it's bigger than the veterinary industry too. It's just culture yes, problem yeah, as a yeah. whole, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and, and I understand that I am the um, outlier. Carlo is the outlier. We are, uh, as you would say, potentially psychopathic. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, <laughs> however, like for me, like understanding that the systems that are around are lacking in in forgiveness, that are lacking in um, even empathy to to a point. Uh, knowing that just gives me all the opportunity to be like, all right, I know it's not going to be there anyways. So I'm just going to try it because I know that if I, if I hit it, it's, I'm going to make value and I'm more than willing to forgive myself. I know no one else is going to, I'm already walking into it, not expecting any level of gratitude on the other side. I have to create value for this individual because this is what I do. And like, all right, I'm just going to go do it now. Yeah. I don't think about it anymore. No. And, and I, yeah, call, it's, no, call it, me crazy. Yeah. But yeah. It's the forgiveness side that that's, yes. the, that's the problem. Yes. Is anyway, we say fix yourself before you can fix others. Like I think, you know, Caroline, maybe I, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I would challenge to consider this is that, you know, part of that lack of, or I'm sorry, the, the, I don't want to say unwillingness to fail, but just sort of this hatred for failure is yeah. h- how good are you at forgiving yourself of failure? zero <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah. it's like you know and, and that's my whole thing on forgiveness i think i talked about a few weeks ago where i was like or actually no i think i was texting one of my buddies about it is that forgiveness means absolutely nothing if forgiveness is coming from everyone but yourself yes So you can just sit there and you can, you know, listen, you know, you made a mistake. This patient died. Don't worry. It's all, I mean, we're just going to learn from this and, you know, this and for, you know, is it means nothing if you're just going to feel like trash the rest of your life. Right. You know, and I think that's part of that forgiveness is again, when we talk about forgiveness, I'll keep saying this is forgiveness does not take away the accountability of the problem. It takes away the emotion of the problem because when you go through forgiveness, there still can be actions you take to prevent the death of a patient or the cultural problem or whatever it happens to be that led to this uh, scenario of having to establish forgiveness. Um, it just takes the emotion out of it. Yeah. So there is no more yeah. hate for it. Yep. Um, you know, I probably and hate for yourself. Help for yourself. Yes. I, I probably gone the other way where now I love failure, um, mm-hmm. you know, because again, it provides us with the opportunity to, to get better. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, yeah. it's intentionally trying to break the system. I am going to read this yeah. to you, Caroline, because it's hilarious how topical this text that I just got from the <laughs> services is when you realize everyone has issues and also doesn't excel in everything, life gets a lot more fun. Yeah. Not everyone yeah. is good at everything. And in fact, a lot of us suck at a yeah. lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Stop, yes. St- stop beating yourself up. Yeah. Everyone else stinks yeah. too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, honestly, that is the, you know, I, I we joke and you know, and say you know Dr. Carlo and Dr. Katie are kind of you know impervious to the mistake or sure. whatever it might be, and and from an experience perspective, I'd say that they're less prone to them. Uh, we've made them all already. You've. Ex- Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Right. You <laughs> that's learned. Yeah. That's the only difference. You learned through the mistakes. So yeah. that's why, like, for me, it's like, all right, if you make a mistake, mm-hmm. now you know what it is and you yeah. hold it like you just have it. You just yeah. put it in the arsenal right. and you just remember it next time. And it's not because you want to beat yourself up about it next time. Like, man, I really missed on that one. I, I, that sucks. I'm, I suck. It's like, no, I missed on that one. So I'm not going to miss on this one. Yeah. And then yeah. the, the ideal mentor, what we, identify as this star mentor is someone
someone with a high level of competence and a high level of confidence. It's, right. I've already made all the mistakes. I'm not actually going to let anyone make the mistakes after me. All they have to do is ask. Right. You know, that that's why, like I said, mm -hmm. I have such a hard time with imposter syndrome is because we have an environment where we can't ask. Yes. That's and we're just perpetuating. Yeah. Yes. Like, because it's almost like it's a rite of passage. Yes, correct. Which is malarkey. Yes, that's, that's atrocious. Yeah. Talk about yeah. slowing everything down for yeah. no reason whatsoever. Yeah. yeah, and that's why, like I said, I don't feel that confidence is related to experience. Confidence is related yeah. to a willingness to fail. Yeah, you know, and that's where I think when we look at the the confidence side, and you know, like I said, confidence, there's you know self assurance and trust and conviction and so on and so forth. But like I think there is zero problem with seeking confidence and asking for a second opinion. There's, there's no problem in having to ask a mentor or a coworker, or as you said, a more doctory or doctor. <laughs> more doctory doctor. More doctory doctor. There we go. <laughs> I don't think there's any problem with that because you're still of the growth mindset. Yes. When we stop asking questions because we are of the reprimand mindset, we've already failed. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, and it's funny that you bring that up because I actually said that to um, one of our medical support staff this weekend. She approached me with a, she had a question about um, a medication that I had prescribed, and she questioned me on it because it was it was different than than kind of the norm. Um, it was a single dose of something that we typically prescribe multiple doses of, and so she approached me and, and asked you know, is this correct? Did you write this? Did you mean to write this this way? And I said, oh yeah, that's correct. Like, go ahead and, and, and fill it. And afterwards she expressed that she's like, oh, I, I'm sorry for asking or whatever. And, um, you know, I got, I got kind of eye rolls and I was like, I stopped her and I said, you got an eye roll from me? Oh no, from you, like from other people. And I was like, don't even worry about it. I was like, you should want to ask those questions. I want you to ask me those questions. If you see something on a sheet or a Christie sheet or something that looks odd to you, definitely ask right. because I'm human too. I can make mistakes and I would much rather have you ask me and me be like that than have something be done incorrectly and regret not having asked. Exactly. So yeah. I'm hoping that I set the record straight, but I was, you know, it's, it's again, like the medical support staff and everybody within PAW, we're all working together. There's no, there's no such thing as you shouldn't be able to ask questions. Even, even if I'm a veterinarian and you're a medical support staff, it's, yes. it's yeah. Because there is no hierarchy. It's, all, yes. about serving it's all about serving the patient. Exactly. Well, thank you for yep. yeah, Caroline. Thank you. I mean, and that's and now Ben are Ben and I are going to be challenged with finding the eye roller. Right. <laughs> right. So. Although I I will say I will say that to some extent because I see myself in this person as well, um, I may be in her head. That's and right. I know I know I have found um, found my own worst critic in people within like I, I'm projecting my own worst feelings onto other people without them actually being there yeah I mean, if there's an eye so. roller, we'll find him, though. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I got to run because I got to be on the floor oh, at four. Sure. So, um, oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you guys want to continue? Otherwise, yeah. uh, we can wrap up <laughs> for this really week. probably up to like an hour and a half. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We try to keep them under 90 minutes. Yeah. If we can. I mean, an hour Thanks, is our Papa Ben. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> keep an eye on it. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I hope, I hope you enjoyed, uh, your first podcast, Caroline, certainly not the last. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Okay. Well, thank you for coming. Um, and I think that's it for us this week. So guys, we'll see you next week. Uh, hope you had fun with Dr. Caroline. Have a good one.